It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the Acast app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website, at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 24 in our series for 2019, and today's date is Friday, July the 12th. First, I'll be talking to Dan Turns, the CTO, APJ for Blue Prism, and we'll be talking about robots taking over your workplace and their impact on industry and society. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And then I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about the RBA's decision to cut interest rates to a new record low and what it means for the Australian economy. But now let's talk to Dan Turns. Uh, Dan Turns, which industries are most exposed to robotics? Uh, I'd probably say, you know, empowered by rather than exposed, but tomato, tomato. Um, frankly, every industry, uh, you know, whatever, I think, whatever your business happens to be, um, there are, within that organisation, there's an HR department that's onboarding uh, staff and doing time off requests and there's a finance department that's paying salaries and paying expenses and issuing POs and paying invoices and and all of those sort of tasks and all of those sort of functions and similarly functions of the business are well suited to RPA so in that respect you know every every organization 
But I think more specifically, if you talk about, you know, organizations and what are their core business outcomes, um, I think you would say that any any type of business that relies heavily on data and information and the collection of that information, collation of the information, uh, evaluation, dissemination, if, if that if your core business relies upon that, then RPA represents a fantastic opportunity for you. So certainly financial services, certainly telcos, certainly uh, government, retail, uh, anything that's got a supply chain or logistics component to it. These are all, you know, very well suited to RPA. Uh, but it depends on sort of which side of the fence you sit, whether you sit on that ancillary side with finance and HR or core business outcomes. Everyone can make use of it. That's fascinating, but it's also applying to other industries like transport and sure. and mining, for example. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and again, a lot of those a lot of those other industries they'll they'll start in HR and they'll start in finance because there's an operational excellence story there, and there's a, a cost and accuracy uh, and uh, error story there. Um, and as they mature and as they uh, come to understand what RPA is and what it can deliver for them, you start to get, you know, let's say the the entrepreneurs in those businesses start to say, well, hang on, I can apply these in lots of different areas there. And and I can apply it in the area of health and safety. I can apply it in the area of maintenance of my assets. Um, you know, the, the opportunities really are limited by imagination as much as anything else. So it will significantly change these industries, won't it? Uh, absolutely. Um, I think there's a great opportunity for RPA to change industries and, and, and for the better, not for the worse. I don't think we need to see this as some sort of apocalypse or an Armageddon for, uh, you know, the, the employees because, uh, you know, that's not how it's, that's not how uh, it's sort of come to be thus far. Um, you know, I think certainly there's a, when, when organisations start with RPA, they do start, they tend to start with a view of operational excellence and with a view of cost control or cost reduction, um, throughput, performance, speed of execution. Uh, they think about the accuracy of the work. They think about uh, regulatory compliance. All these things are part of their uh, initial business case, and, and it's a good good place to start and, and certainly you know technology needs to deliver value to the organizations um but i think then the the opportunity and the change becomes a lot more fundamental as well um and it goes to the question of what is the nature of work and it goes to the question of how do organizations complete the work that they need to complete um and how do you do that and who's there to do it? And I, I kind of, in my sort of trite little way, we can almost say we won't have an HR department anymore. We'll just have an R department. And some of those Rs will be human resources and some of those Rs will be digital resources. Um, and it creates another, uh, you know, another, another set of resources for organisations to, 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 to do the work. And, you know, the human resources we can see as being the, you know, the senior staff. Uh, the knowledge workers and my digital resources are the junior staff. They're my transactional people. Uh, and it really does uh, open up a lot of opportunities for organisations to, to leverage the particular talents of humans um, to, 
you know, to, to minimise the things we're bad at and, uh, and, and, and really to change how work is completed. Now, of course, there have been all sorts of predictions about massive job losses, and indeed there'll be some job losses, but it will also create new careers, won't it? And it will create jobs. Absolutely. Uh, and I think the, the job losses story is a bit overblown. Um, you know, look, the history of IT is the history of, of automation to, uh, you know, that has disrupted jobs. Um, and change jobs and and look ever was it thus really I don't think RPA is much different to that um, but what it really where where we're organized you know for, for every organization today that is uh, reducing headcount directly as a result of bringing in RPA I reckon there's probably 20 of them who are saying this is not about headcount reduction this is about uh, setting a you know preparing for growth um, enabling us to grow the business without growing our cost base, um, and also about redeploying that uh, that talent to things that they're better at. And so they're trying to the lever that they're trying to move is a lever of service um, and a lever of let's say the customer experience and the customer journey, and using humans to enhance that rather than uh, an opportunity to to wholesale get rid of headcount there. Um, and and that's that's certainly much more prevalent than the uh, the wholesale job losses story. Indeed. Now, the big issue though for companies is how do they make the transition? It's it's something that needs to be thought through certainly um, because this is new and there's it's it's an art as much as it is a science and so you know organizations do need to think through carefully the uh, you know how how do they go on this journey um and there's aspects of it that are cultural and organizational and there's aspects of it that are uh te- technical um and and all of that needs to be considered i i think certainly organizations need to uh, do a, a high degree of internal education uh, because, <laughs> as much as we might say no job losses, that's not necessarily how it may appear at the coalface. Um, and you've got to, you have to avoid that um, sort of attitude internally, because because it's a, you know, it, it, it's not something that organisations want, and, and and frankly, it's not uh, realistic either. So that internal education is absolutely critical. Um, you know, as we talk about redeploying humans onto things that they're better suited to, and things that leverage human talents and, you know, the, the higher order skills, the judgment and empathy and what have you, and you start to ask, if I, if I didn't have my humans doing X, Y, and Z, instead they can do A, B, and C, and A, B, and C is more valuable to me. And actually, is there a D, E, and F that they could be doing that no one does today that actually adds even more value? Organizations have to ask, what's the A, B, and C, and what's the D, E, and F? Um, and to plan for that and to, to train people around that um, and to educate and, and the like. So all of that goes to the, the uh, cultural and organisational changes that, that are afoot. Um, and, and from the technical aspect, uh, they need to appreciate that whilst RPA, you know, when they, when they look at the demo, when they do the POC, it seems so easy. Yeah, and, it, and it is quite easy. But there are, uh, you know, there's, there's a methodology to doing it right um, there are aspects of the technology that need to be treated with respect, and uh, you know they they need to uh, follow the right approach, if you like. Understand what that methodology is. Understand how to approach the technology appropriately, and and be ready for it. So, well, that's key. 
uh, what you're saying to to get to the A, B, C, D, E, and F, what companies <laughs> need to do is actually do an audit of their skills in the organisation and the direction the company is heading in. Would that be correct? Hundred percent. You know the the governance aspect of it. You know. What processes should be automated? Why are we automating those processes? How are we going to use the time that we've saved? And, you know, if you look at some of the companies that have been doing this for a while, they're they're saving in the order of millions of hours of of human time with their their sort of digital worker platform. So the the millions of hours can be redeployed more profitably, understanding where to do that, the, the audit, the governance aspect of it. What are we going to automate? What's not appropriate for automating? This is a big part of doing it right. And that is a massive, massive task for, what, HR teams and management teams? It's HR, it's management, it's subject matter experts, uh, it's the digital entrepreneurs in the company. Um, I, sort of, I sort of look at, you know, how, how might organisations uh, discover the things that they can do better? Um, and there's an aspect of it of the, the digital entrepreneur having the big thoughts about innovation and disruption and uh, dealing with the, you know, changing market forces and the like and having the, the big thoughts. There's also the, uh, you know, the, the consideration of the employee suggestion box um, of smaller things that that still move the, the lever and all of these sort of become ideas of how to improve. So those subject matter experts are just as important. The people at the coalface are just as important as, you know, the, the planning and the strategy people and the like. And, and all of it can deliver uh, real benefits. And all of it means is also that the business, one of the things I think that RPA offers organisations, it's possibly not as well appreciated as just simply your, you know, cost and operational excellence, it offers organisations the ability for the business to own and operate their own processes. You know, whereas perhaps in the past they have to turn to IT to for any improvements, for any automation, for any integration. Now business can leverage that, and that gives the business people and the subject matter experts and the people at the coalface that opportunity to do the things that that they know to improve their position to improve their relationship with customers and the like that perhaps they wouldn't otherwise be able to do. Um, and it's it's quite an interesting opportunity for the business uh, that, that perhaps is underappreciated. Final question, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I One of the big issues I have is of governments focusing on, around the world, focusing on immigration, taking jobs, etc. And jobs aren't necessarily disappearing because of immigrants. What they need to look at are issues like technology, like robotics. You can't build a wall against robotics, for example. Now, what role should governments have in this? Well, that's a that's an interesting question. I think that governments need to govern, governments need to appreciate that there are uh, sort of changing dynamics in work, um, and. You know, keep an eye. I think they need to, to keep an eye on how uh, how companies are, you know, leveraging those technologies. So, if I sort of think further about this, I think things like AI, machine learning. Um, there's a very there's a very interesting intersection, if you like, between AI and machine learning on one hand, and RPA on the other hand, and RPA sort of facilitating the adoption of 
artificial intelligence into the organisation. So that, that raises questions of bias. It raises all the, all the questions we see uh, talked about in the media all the time about uh, the bias of algorithms and the like and, and ensuring, uh, you know, fairness as much as anything else. I think governments need to, to keep an eye on that. Um, I think governments need to, as they are, and actually one of the things that's spurring RPA is governments looking at things like work style reforms. If you think about Japan, you know, the government has said the work-life balance, how how organisations are treating uh, their, their employees, the question of an ageing and growing population and how are we going to deal with those sort of things. And, and in some respects, uh, you know, RPA is not the problem that they need to uh, regulate or uh, avoid as much as it is the solution to some of the problems uh, that, that are coming down the pipe. And so, uh, you know, governments, governments should be aware of what's possible. Um, they should certainly be uh, familiarising themselves with the pros and cons and uh, look to be, look to be uh, sort of enhancing the pros and, uh, you know, eliminating the cons as much as, you know, that's government in a nutshell, I think. Well, Dan, it's been fascinating discussion, and thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And now let's talk to Indeed economist Callum Pickering. Callum Pickering, the RBA has cut interest rates as expected, twice in a row, and uh, you're expecting they're going to do it again. Is that right? Uh, It certainly seems that way. Um, The fact that the Reserve Bank has cut two months in a row suggests that they are very concerned about the economic outlook. Typically, they, they do tend to wait between cuts. So often they'll wait a month or two before they make that decision. So they're very serious about what's happening with the economy right now. And that suggests that um, with that concern that they are likely to cut rates again. And that's certainly what the market expects. The market's fully priced in another cut by February uh, next year. Um, I think the likely month that the RBA moves is probably either November or that February. And so that'll take it down to 0.75%. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's remarkable that we, we get down to that uh, rate after sitting at uh, 1.5% for so long. Indeed, and uh, the RBA was saying it didn't. It was happy to keep the rate at 1.5% to keep things stable, so this is quite a massive change. Yeah, for a long time it seemed that the, the hurdle for cutting again was very high, that there was a certain reluctance from the RBA to do so. Um, which really goes to show just how much has changed in the Australian economy over the past probably three to six months, particularly on the inflation side, where um, underlying inflation got down to around 1.4%, as well as on the growth side, where we have seen the, the weakest gr- um, growth figures in, in about a decade, all the way back to the, uh, the height of the global financial crisis. Indeed, indeed. Now, a number of economists are saying that uh, the combination of the rate cuts combined with the taxation cut, which went through Parliament last week, and the uh, also APRA easing up on lending requirements uh, will actually be enough to stimulate the economy and keep us out of recession, dare I say. Well, time will tell whether it's enough, but certainly it looks as though it will stimulate the economy um, to some degree. It should certainly help on the household spending side, which has been a a real source of um, concern over uh, not just the last six months, but over the last couple of years, really, with that that low wage growth, which has persisted. Um, Lower rates and and the the tax cuts in particular will sort of provide an immediate um, stimulus to the household sector. Um, The other part of the economy we're really looking at is the housing market itself and certainly what's happened with um, 
with what app has done. Um, relax, relax, relaxing standards uh, there uh, should certainly help to at least stabilise the market in, in Sydney and Melbourne. Whether it's enough to, to push prices higher in those markets is a little bit unclear at this point. It could take some time for that to, to materialise, but at the very least, it looks as though those big price falls are perhaps um, stop for now. But you're saying it's a matter of time till we see whether they do have an impact or not. That's right. Um, we've got to remember with these rate cuts, it takes a long time for rate cuts to flow through an economy. Um, a movement made today could very well take 12 or 18 months to fully materialise across the Australian economy. There are certain aspects of the economy that react um, quite quickly. The exchange rate for one, um, obviously mortgage rates have reacted quite quickly. But there's a number of channels that sort of take a, a number of months, if not years, to sort of fully show itself. Now... I personally think the RBA is taking a big punt here. Uh, For a start, we have household indebtedness. Now, the last figures I saw, uh, debt to disposable income was running at something like 189.7%, which is massive. And the RBA is counting on people spending the money. Now, will they spend the money or will they put it into savings or... Will they use the lower rate? Will they use lower rates to actually borrow more and go into more debt? So, and of course, there's business debt as well. Uh, what what do you see? Do you see this as a big gamble or not? Uh, absolutely. Um, there is a, a lot of things going on at the moment that would cause some concern for the RBA. They know that when they cut rates, it tends to lead to increased debtedness. And the fact that APRA has relaxed standards just recently suggests that that is potentially something that could very well happen. Um, The higher the level um, the debt goes, um, the more sensitive the household sector becomes to things such as rate changes. Um, It also makes it more difficult for the RBA to to hike in the future because you've got such a a massive level of debt there. Um, So I think the RBA would certainly be concerned on that front. Personally, I think they'd be hoping that um, households use the extra money from those rate cuts to spend more, um, to sort of supplement their their wages, basically. Uh, I think they'd be okay with them using the extra money to, to pay down their debts, to do leverage a little bit. But if households do do that, then the stimulus to the economy will not be as great. I think right now the RBA would probably ultimately prefer um, for these rate cuts to stimulate the economy via higher spending. And combined with the tax cuts, that could happen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the tax cuts in particular, because they do come in as a lump sum, effectively, um, means that a lot of that money can go straight back into the economy via the retail sector. Um, you'd expect the, the likes of JB Hi-Fi and Harvey Norman would probably be pretty happy with um, the tax situation right now. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Now, the other issue, though, too, is unemployment. Unemployment is still tracking at uh, 5.5%, and that, of course, has an impact on wages. Uh, I would say that the unemployment figure would have to have a four in front of it before we see an impact on wages. What's your view about that? Yeah, for a long time, the RBA thought that 5% was going to be enough, but evidently that wasn't the case. Um, They believe that we need to get down to around 4.5%, and I think it could actually be a little bit lower than that as well. Um, I think a very low four number might be necessary to get wage growth above that 3% handle. 
um, which is somewhere that we haven't been for a number of years right now. Wage growth is currently around 2.3%. Um, so there's still a lot of slack in the labour market. Um, certainly in recent months, the, the level of um, labour market slack has actually increased. So we're heading in the, the wrong direction here. The RBA is trying to, to stop that from happening and, and, and turn back. Um, but we're, we're certainly a long way away from having a sufficiently strong labour market to be producing the sort of wage growth that we were once accustomed to, which is over 3%. And where does that leave the RBA for the future? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, I mean, certainly at the moment, it looks as though they will cut again in the next six months, um, November or February, in my opinion. Um, and given the sheer difficulty in lifting uh, inflation and the, the overall global economy, which continues to, to sort of struggle, particularly on the inflation side, I think there's, there is definitely risks of rates going below um, that 0.75%. There's also the, the risk of the RBA looking at other measures, such as um, quantitative easing, if they can't get inflation above 2%, which they've really generally struggled to do over the past uh, five or six years. And the, the problem with quantitative easing is, uh, as we saw in the US, all it did was it raised the price of assets, but didn't do much for the economy. That's right. You don't get a lot of bang for your buck. Um, definitely impacts um, financial markets. You'd expect stocks to do pretty well. You'd expect a bit of flow onto the housing sector, um, but not a lot of it flowed through to the, the real economy. Um, a little bit did, and it did help to increase inflation um, by a bit, but given how much the Federal Reserve spent they really didn't get a lot of um, bang for their buck. Um, the Reserve Bank would certainly be looking at that experience in the likes of uh, the US, Europe and Japan um, before they sort of make any move um, on that front. Which means it wouldn't be their preferred option at all. I mean, in an ideal world, they absolutely don't want to go down that, that road. But if they can't get inflation much higher than it currently is and, and rates... Um, you know, get down to a 0.5 or even a little bit lower. Um, they don't have too many other options, um, given what's available to them at the moment. So they would sort of inevitably begin to think about QE. That said, the the suite of policy options within QE is quite broad, and so you can sort of tinker with that to sort of get a little bit more bang for your buck than what happened in the likes of the United States. Which is why uh, Philip Lowe has been telling the government we, we can't just do all the heavy lifting. You actually have to start spending on infrastructure. Yeah, that's right. The Reserve Bank's looking for a little bit of support so they don't have to go down that QE road. If they don't get that support, then they'll definitely start to think about other policy options. But in an ideal world, um, the federal and state governments would be working with the RBA to stimulate the economy right now. Um, it seems crazy to me that we've got a cash rate of 1%, we're looking at a cash rate of below 1%, and yet the federal government's talking surpluses. Um, it seems as though this would be a perfect opportunity to invest a little bit more, to spend a little bit more, and to create that strong economy that the federal government loves to talk about so much. Indeed, and uh, as Philip Lowe says, I mean, if you borrow now, you're only borrowing at about 1.3%. Exactly. It's a perfect opportunity to invest in Australia's future from an infrastructure standpoint, and yet we haven't really taken advantage of it. Well, that'll be fascinating to watch. And Callum, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. So what's happening in the news? Well, the number of Hong Kong citizens looking to move to Australia has risen sharply since proposed extradition laws fueled growing concerns about the erosion of civil liberties under Chinese rule in the cities, migration consultants and property agents say. 
Wealthy Hong Kong residents were also looking to move assets to third countries such as Australia as an insurance policy against the introduction of proposed extradition laws, which would allow people accused of financial crimes to be sent to China, they said. Immigration agents said Australia, along with Canada and Taiwan, were the most popular destinations for Hong Kong residents looking to relocate overseas. All three countries have reportedly experienced a surge in inquiries since unrest over news triggered mass protests in the former British colony over the past month. Many were also quietly transferring assets out of Hong Kong, concerned about any push by the government could leave them vulnerable to China's opaque legal system and restrictions on capital outflow. And the US women's national team won the 2019 Women's World Cup on Sunday with a 2-0 win over the Netherlands. The US has won back-to-back World Cups and won the tournament four times overall. However, there remains a giant pay disparity between the women's prize money and the men's. The members of the US women's national team will make about $250,000 each in prize money. The US men's national team, which did not qualify for the 2018 World Cup, would make a little over $1.1 million each if they had won the World Cup. There's also a giant gap between the total prize money in the Women's World Cup versus the men's. There is US $30 million in prize money for the 2019 Women's World Cup. The 2018 Men's World Cup had US $400 million. And Deutsche Bank is to axe vast swathes of its trading desks in one of the biggest overhauls to an investment bank since the aftermath of the financial crisis in a restructuring that will see 18,000 jobs go and cost 7.4 billion euro. That's 11.9 billion Aussie. In London, some staff stayed away from work after being told their passes would stop working at 11 o'clock. The plan represents a major retreat from investment banking by Deutsche Bank, which for years had tried to compete as a major force on Wall Street. As part of the overhaul, the bank will scrap its global equities business, scale back its investment bank, and also cut some of its fixed income operations, an area traditionally regarded as one of its strengths. The bank will set up a new so-called bad bank to wind down unwanted assets with a value of 74 billion euro. The depth of the restructuring shows that Deutsche is coming to terms with its failure to keep pace with Wall Street's big hitters such as J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. and Goldman Sachs. Chief Executive Officer Christian Sewing who now aims to focus on the bank's more stable revenue streams, said it was the most fundamental transformation of the bank in decades. This is a restart, he said. And Australia's interest rate cuts failed to gain traction as households' worries about the economic outlook sent consumer confidence slumping to a two-year low. The sentiment index fell 4.1% to 96.5% in July, the weakest reading since August 2017, Westpac Banking Corporation said in a statement. The biggest decline was in the sub-index tracking expectations for the economy in the next 12 months, which plunged 12.3%. And a flickering increase in business confidence appears to have been extinguished, and corporate Australia continues to lose momentum. Those are the key findings of NAB's latest business survey, which has found business confidence tumbled back to below average levels in June, after a brief bounce in May, despite the end of uncertainty over the federal election and the RBA's first rate cut. Business conditions picked up marginally, but also remained mired well below trend. Weak forward orders point to an ongoing loss of momentum, although employment conditions picked up in June. And fewer workers are leaving their jobs, and more want to work extra hours, new data says, suggesting key reasons for low wage growth. Figures released by the Australian Bureau of Statistics on Monday showed 8 out of 10 workers, or 10 million, had been in their job for 12 months or more in the year ending February 2019, an increase over the decade. Underemployment 
or employers who want to work additional hours had risen over the past decade from 7.6% of the labour force in 2009 to 8.2% in 2019, or 1.1 million. Almost half, or 46%, reported working insufficient hours for a year or longer. The median duration was 39 weeks, up from 26 weeks in 2009. The Reserve Bank has previously highlighted underemployment as a possible reason for low wage growth, as it indicates there is still more slack in the labour market. And 12% of Australian properties were resold at a loss, compared to what the sellers had paid for them in the first three months of 2019. It was the highest level of loss-making sales in six years, and another sign of weaker property market conditions, according to the latest Pain and Gain report by property analyst CoreLogic. This was also a marked increase from 10.5% in the December 2018 quarter and 9% in the March 2018 quarter. Australia had a total of $486.8 million in realised gross losses from resales over the March quarter, with higher share of losses nationally seen in Perth, 24.8%, and Sydney, 9.9%, CoreLogic analyst Kamer Kusher wrote in his report. And ANZ Australian job ads bounced back in June after falling more than 8% in May. The holiday year effect in late April and the timing of the election appear to have been responsible for much of the decline in May, and the rebound in June can be seen as an unwinding of that effect. In seasonally adjusted terms, job ads gained 4.6% for the month, but fell by 9.1% for the year. In trend terms, job ads fell 1.4% for the month and 11.1% for the year. And the big fellow banks will have longer than expected to raise extra capital to absorb potential losses after the Prudential Regulator amended its proposed framework for minimising the fallout from failed institutions. The Australian Prudential Regulation Authority on Tuesday said majors had to lift total capital by three percentage points of risk-weighted assets by 2024, putting away what the regulator estimates will be another $50 billion to minimise the need for taxpayer funds should they collapse. APRA had flagged a 4 to 5 percentage point increase in initial proposal published in November, but amended the timeline following submissions from parties including the customer-owned banking association. APRA said its long-term target of a 4 to 5 percentage point increase remained unchanged. And Australia could be responsible for 13% of the world's carbon dioxide emissions by 2030, up from 5% today, a new report by Berlin-based think tank Climatic Analytics finds. The report, commissioned by the Australian Conservation Foundation, analysed both domestic emissions and, controversially, emissions from Australia's fossil fuel exports that are burnt in other countries. It put current domestic emissions from energy generation, agriculture, transport and so on, the figure usually cited, at 1.4%. Emissions from fossil fuel exports came in at 3.6% of total global emissions. By 2030, the report predicted the fiscal figure for fossil fuel exports would almost triple to 10.4%, of which thermal and metallurgical coal exports would make up the vast majority at 8.1%. The estimates assume global emissions will fall by 45% on 2010 levels, the median point of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's estimates of what is necessary if global temperature rises are to remain at or below 1.5 degrees. It also assumes Australia will export all the coal and gas that industry and government estimates projects it will. But the report also warned that Australia's projected coal and gas exports over the next decade were out of step with the Paris Agreement targets and that if countries meet their targets, demand for Australian fossil fuels could plummet, resulting in stranded assets. And Coles has signed a major alliance with tech giant Microsoft, 
which will enable it to use artificial intelligence and other digital systems to overhaul its supply chain, product range, customer engagement and workforce, as a retailer targets $1 billion in savings over four years. The long-term multi-million dollar agreement is Cole's third big alliance since emerging from West Farmers last November, and will see Microsoft's Azure Cloud Platform, Dynamics 365 Enterprise Resourcing Planning and Modern Workplace Suites underpinning its smarter selling program, which is aimed at restoring profit growth. Coles will build an enterprise data platform in Azure, which it said would help it ramp up advanced analytics and AI to improve the performance of stores. The software is intended to help store managers with forecasting and on-shelf availability, as well as enabling them to tailor ranges to suit community preferences and improve range reviews by better understanding which products are substitutable and which aren't. Coles will also use AI to make more relevant, personalised offers to customers by not only taking into account past purchases, but factoring in weather and local community events. And Australian employers who let their staff use ride-sharing services such as Uber instead of a taxi could be hit with a hefty tax bill. It comes after the Australian Taxation Office announced that cars used for ride-sharing services such as Uber are not taxis and are therefore subject to a fringe benefits tax. A fringe benefit is when an employer provides an employee with a benefit such as paying for a gym membership, giving them tickets to free concerts, or letting them use a work car for private reasons. An FBT is paid by employers on the benefits they provide, according to the ATO. It is separate to income tax and is calculated on the taxable value of the fringe benefit. However, there are certain items that are exempt from an FBT, such as taxi travel by an employee. Any benefit arising from taxi travel by an employee is an exempt benefit if a travel is a single trip beginning or ending at the employee's place of work, according to the ATO. The taxi travel exemption was created in 1995 and meant certain types of taxi travel would not be taxed, according to the ATO. The exemption is limited to a vehicle licensed as a taxi, so it doesn't apply to ride-sharing services, as they are not registered as taxis. This means that an employer actually needs to pay tax on Uber rides that employees have taken from work or to work. So all the innovative employers that have set up Uber for business could actually be taxed for their progressive tax transport policies. And two Gold Coast payday lenders charging interest rates as high as 990% will be the first targets of the Australian Securities Investments Commission new product intervention powers. In a new consultation power released on Tuesday, ASIC proposes intervening in a business model that it claims causes significant consumer detriment by charging huge rates of interest on loans of up to $1,000, but that is permitted thanks to carve-outs in lending laws. ASIC said two affiliated payday lenders, Signo and Gold Silver Standard Finance, were using the model. ASIC said the lenders were targeting consumers in urgent need of relatively small amounts of money, as little as $50, which ASIC said indicated the vulnerability of the target market. The regulator said such loans must be repaid with a maximum of 62 days. A term ASIC said increased the risk of default as repayments are based on the term of the credit rather than being based on the capacity to repay. ASIC cited one case where a customer of Signo on the new start allowance ended up owing $1,189 on a $120 loan after she defaulted on the repayments. Under current rules, payday lenders are exempt from the National Credit Code and National Credit Act if they meet certain conditions, such as only extending credit for less than 62 days. This exemption means lenders like Signo and Gold Silver Standard Finance can operate without a credit licence and are not answerable to the Australian Financial Complaints Authority. ASIC wants to address this exemption. However, the new powers require ASIC to go through a period of consultation. 
It must also establish that the practice it is seeking to stamp out is causing significant consumer detriment. The consultation period will last until July the 30th. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Jerry Komninos, CEO of Hydrolite, which is revolutionising the portable power industry with its hydrocell fuel cell technology. A fuel cell that generates its own power when activated by dipping it in water. Hydrolite's products are aimed at reducing the waste associated with single-use batteries and raising awareness of alternative energy solutions. The company has developed technology that can harness the electrons liberated from magnesium anode when immersed in water into a usable direct current power. The Hydrolite system is a revolutionary technology that creates power using a chemical reaction between metal and water. The hydrocell uses this reaction to efficiently capture electrons released during this process with the water acting as a catalyst to create this reaction once it comes into contact with the hydrocell. And I'll be talking to economist Nicholas Green, looking at how to make government decision-making more accountable. And of course, I'll be bringing you all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Have a great week. Take care. Be good. And looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.